so we've been talking about uh, the incarnation for the last uh, month or two, and we're going to continue with that, but we're taking a little two-week pause uh, to focus on this idea of what is the role of women in the church. Uh, tomorrow night, Sarah Bessie will be here. One of the things that she'll be speaking about is that, as well as like uh, coming to grips with an evolving faith. There's two books that she's written that she's going to be talking about um, in part, and uh, it'll be a fun evening, so I would encourage you to be there uh, tomorrow night for that. Uh, but uh, what we want to do this morning is kind of set the stage for that uh, tomorrow night, and then also kind of uh, prep us for the following week where we begin to talk a little bit more about the application. This morning we want to talk a little bit more, uh, hopefully, from a theological perspective. And anytime you talk about an um, issue of theology within the church, I think it's important for us to get uh, to a place where we're kind of all on the same page. And one of the things uh, that we wanted to do this morning, at, right off the bat, is to help us maybe consider a way that we could all be on the same page, and that is related to the way we have conversation. I'm going to give you a little chart uh, for you to look at here in a moment, and the chart's going to build, and the idea behind the chart building along with my voice building uh, right now is um, we're, we're going to be able to, I think, talk through the various stages of conversation, okay, and how that relates to um, us dialoguing together in a healthy way that allows us to move forward, okay? So, uh, first center circle. I'm going to show you a chart with some circles on there. The first center circle, is it doing that because I'm moving toward Mike? Okay. So it's just going to be annoying, okay? We'll just plan on that. All right. Uh, I'm not sure if you can read that or not, but it is a circle uh, with a dark line around the outside, and on the inside it says the word dogma. Dogma. Okay? So here's the kind of the first level of the conversation. When we talk about the issue of dogma, what we're uh, talking about are beliefs that are considered essential to the gospel. Beliefs that we would say are central to our faith, uh, that they're absolutely uh, important, that if we were to remove these beliefs, we would essentially be removing uh, parts of Christianity that would make Christ Christianity no longer Christianity, right? They're, they're um, so central to the faith. And, and so give me, let me give you a couple examples. Uh, creedal theology. So Nicene Creed, Apostles' Creed, um, Trinitarian theology, understanding of the Trinity uh, being essential. Uh, Jesus as God. Uh, think things like bodily resurrection. Uh, if you take any of those things away, if you remove any of those parts, uh, then really you're removing the, the very core of our faith. You're removing the essentials that make Christianity Christianity. Uh, they tend to be things that are salvific in nature, that are tied to our relationship with God and toward salvation. All right? So that's dogma. Okay, second layer, second circle. This uh, circle is a circle of doctrine. Uh, many of us are familiar with these two terms, dogma being the center, doctrine being a little bit outside of that. Doc doctrine are beliefs that are considered important but not essential. Important but not essential. 
Uh, I looked it up on Wikipedia because it's a great resource for all of us, right? Wikipedia says a doctrine is a codification of beliefs or a body's taught principles or positions. So it would be things that we as a community believe, but not at the level of them being the most essential or the most important to our faith. Does that make sense? So this, uh, this circle is interesting because it's often a dividing line for churches. This is where one church will hold one doctrinal position and another church will hold a different doctrinal position. And then we have the notion that this position means that I probably shouldn't spend time with you because you have that position. And that's why we have 33,000 different denominations, right? Because you have all, we all have slightly different doctrinal views that aren't essential to faith and yet are uh, significant enough for us to have conversation about. Uh, and so when you think about things like doctrine, you should be thinking of things like uh, Calvinist or Wesleyan theology, maybe God's foreknowledge. Uh, you could think about things like baptism and uh, the theology behind that, or uh, like is it sprinkling, is it immersion, is it feet washing, is it uh, a bunch of things that are interesting, intriguing, but not necessarily essential to the faith. Now, the important part about this particular circle is uh, that it is a big circle for some and smaller for others. So some churches will hold to a bigger doctrinal circle and others will hold to a smaller doctrinal circle. And then others <clears throat> will make the doctrine circle just as bold as the internal dogma circle. Uh, you'll notice that ours is dotted. I'm going to tell you why it's dotted for two particular reasons. Number one, because I hold the belief that no one in humility can draw the perfect size circle that would encompass all the essential and super important issues of doctrine and draw that for everyone equally, right? So like take your small group, for example. If you were to just sit down in your small group and draw your doctrine circle and compare your circle to everyone else in your group, chances are that no two circles would be the same size, would hold the exact same things in them. Uh, and, and that's just the truth. That's the reality. So in humility, we have to say, man, it, it, since we all have different shapes or different sizes, let's make those lines a little bit perforated. Right, so that we can understand that there's gaps in our understanding of doctrine. Uh, and the, these doctrinal issues are obviously issues of historical debate, and for us to assume that we have the corner on the market would be uh, a bit bold. Okay. Uh, the second reason that it's a dotted circle is because we tend, over time, to change our own doctrinal beliefs. That we individually tend to change our own doctrinal beliefs. Uh, I would say that any of us, if we were to look back on our life five years ago and look at it today, if we have not changed in any way in our doctrinal beliefs, we probably have stopped growing. We could probably argue that to be true in any area of our life. I mean, some of us in the room probably thought five years ago that if you were to eat a salad or to eat a peanut butter and jelly sandwich, basically nutritionally it's a wash, right? Like... Bread from wheat, it's good for you. Peanut butter from peanuts, also good for you. Protein. Jelly, 
from fruit, also good for you, right? <laughs> Peanut butter and jelly sandwich, salad, equal, right? Now, I use that as a, a kidding illustration, but the point is that many of us in the room would have seen a development in our understanding of nutrition, or our understanding of technology, or our understanding of relationships, or science, or history, or we evolve in all of these ways, right? And another one that we do is the issue of doctrine, of faith, of our understanding. And so, <clears throat> it's dotted, because in humility we can't draw all the same size circle, and two, because we tend to change over time. Let me give you one little side note on this particular issue of doctrine. I would argue <clears throat> that this circle of doctrine is not a circle that in any way should affect community. What I mean by that is two parties can disagree about a certain theological issue, and yet they can still worship together, be in group together, covenant to life together, really know and love one another and still be on opposite sides of a particular given issue, right? So it shouldn't in no way affect community. It also uh, is important for you to know that historically, New Community has only stated that our doctrinal belief is the Apostles' Creed. We use that as a stated doctrinal statement, something that for uh, hundreds and hundreds of years has been agreed upon as the church and uh, in all the other doctrinal issues, we would probably go, oh, that's interesting, but probably not worthy for us to have a position on, right? Because they're changing, they're morphing, and uh, so we just stick to the basics related to doctrine. Now, uh, some people ask me this. Some people ask the question, well, how do you know what should be in the dogma circle and what should be in the doctrine circle? How do you determine? And there's lots of ways that probably you can determine uh, which belongs where, which particular issue belongs where it belongs. Uh, but I, I would say for me, the answer is simply this. What are the doctrines or what are the ideas or what are the beliefs that I would be willing to give my life for? So for example, I would be willing to give my life for the belief that Jesus is God. That's essential to our faith. If, if Jesus isn't God, uh, then we have problems in Christianity, right? Second illustration would be the bodily resurrection. I believe that Jesus literally rose from the grave, and it changes my understanding of everything, right? So those would be so essential to me that I would give my life for them. I would orient everything around those beliefs. Other beliefs, for example, uh, the type of baptism one church would perform versus a different church would perform is not something that I'd be willing to give my life for. I would go, hey, that's interesting. I like that. I prefer this method or version. You might prefer another. Awesome. We can be friends. We can relate. We can do ministry together. We can do any of that. But that wouldn't be what I would consider to be the most essential to my faith. It's not salvific in nature. Uh, it's, it doesn't cause Christianity to crumble if we choose one version or another. Another example, just in case uh, you want more, uh, I'm, I'm not going to lose a lot of sleep over what version of the Bible you read from, right? As long as you are reading from the Bible. That would be great, right? The more the better. But I'm not too concerned about the version you use. I'm not too concerned about what version of the end times you imagine might happen, right? It doesn't concern me. 
for others of us, again, that might be something we go, oh, that's got to be closer to the center for me. Particularly, it's not. Which leads to our third circle. All right, third circle is the next one is preference or opinion. Preference or opinion. Now, preference or opinion, a belief is relegated to that position of preference or opinion when it is considered interesting but not relatively unimportant to faith in the church. So it's interesting. We might have a conversation about your opinion, your preference, but it is relatively unimportant to anything related to faith in the church. Uh, This would be issues that um, there's a variety of opinions on, or a variety of perspectives on, and... um, and really tend to be issues of liberty. Uh, Does one have liberty to do this or not in their particular faith? Uh, If you're looking for examples, uh, some would say consuming alcohol versus abstaining from the consumption of alcohol. Others might uh, say what school you choose to send your kids to or what neighborhood you choose to live in, uh, what is an appropriate amount of money to save versus give versus... Uh, retire with, etc. Um, back in the day, my parents had to ask the questions like, do we go to the dance? Do we not? Do we go to the movies? Do we not? And uh, the reason I've used the shape of not a circle, but uh, a little bit different, is because I would argue that this is a constantly moving amorphous shape. Preferences change all the time. Opinion changes all the time. It, it changes based on culture, based on interest based on your age, uh, based on certain desires you have, the desires of someone you love or care for, all of that shifts and moves uh, quite a bit. And so this is to give us a little bit of an understanding of the way we talk about uh, theological issues at New Community. Now, go one step further. This is a picture in general. Here's how I would picture New Community. Next slide. Uh, This one, let me explain it to you. The middle circle is dogma. You see doctrine there. I'll get to the second circle in a minute. And then you have this bigger idea of preference. What you're going to notice is a couple things. One thing you're going to notice is the change in size. Go back to the last screen really quick. Okay. And then go to the next one. Good. See the change in size? That's because this. We would say there are very, very, very few essentials in the center of dogma, right? Very few. There's very few things that I would give my entire life for and believe that the entire belief of Christianity would crumble if those things weren't present, right? There's a few of them. I mentioned them before. Jesus being God, uh, the resurrection, uh, the very few. God speaking to us, communicating to us through His Word, Uh, Those are all the essentials, right? So you'll notice it's a little bit different, uh, a little smaller. Doctrine circle is a little bit smaller. Preference is obviously a lot bigger comparatively. The second thing you're going to notice is um, doctrine still stays dotted, but I would also add one other little wrinkle to it. Our doctrine tends to be weighted toward faith and practice. What I mean by that are things like taking communion together, uh, gathering in a regular rhythm, uh, being um, encouraging one another toward Christ's likeness and wholeness, um, being uh, all of our doctrine tends to be less oriented toward theological debate and more oriented toward uh, faith and practice. All right, which brings me to this 
next and last slide, and that is the little circle that we've added around and in between dogma and doctrine. Let me explain this circle before we conclude this first little part. So that circle we would best describe as the issues or the ideas related to what we would call a full and authentic expression of worship in community. What I mean by that is there are the types of conversations, the types of ideas, the type of doctrine or theology related to us as a community that become essential for the way we worship with one another. I'll give you a couple of illustrations. Uh, for, for us at Newcom, this second circle, we would say, is uh, more solid, okay? And it's the non-negotiable but non-salvific issues, okay? So like uh, a space in which they're essential to the way we worship together, they're essential to the way we relate to one another, but they would not be considered salvific, they would not break down the whole of Christianity, but they also would be important enough not to be placed just in the circle of doctrine. For example, women in ministry and women's leadership or women's role within the church would be something inside of that circle for us. Another thing inside of that circle would be race equality. And you could list a few other things inside that circle as well. Uh, And we would say anything that is inside of that circle would be something that would um, destroy or ruin in some way the full and authentic expression of worship in this community. So I'll give you one final illustration um, before this section is done. If, and this will be to kind of explain what I mean by that, if my family came and we were new to the church and we walked in on a given Sunday, and over the course of a couple weeks, months, maybe even a Sunday or two, we began to notice certain things about this community, that would obviously determine whether we wanted to spend time in the community or not, right? It's a decision people make on a regular basis. Now, Let's assume we walked in, and when we walked in, it became very clear and evident to me that my wife was not treated as an equal. She was not considered to offer the same amount of gifts to the church as I did, had less of a voice in the church than I would have. Um, Desired, nice person, caring, all of those things, but not given the same opportunities to express gifts and abilities within the community, we would say that that would hinder, it would hinder my worship, sitting there knowing that you all felt that way about my wife, right? It would hinder her ability to authentically worship in the community and uh, to use her gifts for the betterment of this body. And so that would be, for us, problematic. Or let's assume we walked in, and on a given Sunday it was clear that my daughter would be treated differently because of her race than the rest of us would be treated. If that was the case, you could certainly understand how that would hinder my authentic worship within this community, correct? So it's just an illust- those are just simple illustrations to say that when you look at the center dogma, that's what's essential to all of faith. When you look at that next little circle for us at New Community, it's those things that promote and encourage healthy worship together, and the full expression of that worship together. 
Uh, we shouldn't have to, any of us shouldn't have to check our identity at the door simply because we're here to worship together and love one another. Last little section, dogma. It's those things that are important and yet not essential to faith. And then preference or opinion are those things that uh, really change over time for many of us and are quite non-essential to our faith. I say all this at the beginning because I think it will help us to answer some of the questions we'll answer later. Um, Our good buddy, Kevin's good buddy, Rupert, ends with this quote. Ready? And I think it's important for us to remember. Next slide. Right there. In the essentials, unity. In the non-essentials, liberty in all things charity. That's really what our desire is, is to be a community that says in the essential things, we want to be so unified. In the non-essential things, we want a lot of liberty and in, in the things that, uh, um, in all things, we want love. So uh, first service, we sang a few extra songs and uh, then we ran out of time uh, really quick. So we only got to a couple questions. <laughs> And so this time, we uh, decided to adjust and uh, hopefully get to a few more questions. The questions, though, I think I left in the back. Did I? Yeah. Okay. Um, so um, they told me that there's a different set of questions in the first service, so thank you for writing a bunch. Um, we got into two questions last time, so my hope is that we'll get to a few more uh, this morning. And we'll see. So, uh, this first question apparently comes in four parts. Okay? <clears throat> so, uh, what verses do you get this position or belief from? So, the equality of men and women, what verses do you get this position from? And then, how do you justify this in light of 1 Corinthians 14.34? Okay, good. Um, how do we deal with cultural context? Uh, for example, 1 Timothy, women being silent in the church. Uh, how do we reconcile this belief with scriptures such as 1 Timothy 2.12, I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority. And how do you respond to a person who quotes the scripture, oh, women may not speak in church, quote, unquote. Okay? Uh, so that's obviously why they were all uh, attached together, all kind of concerning the same uh, particular topic. So, uh, if you'll permit me, instead of going just straight into those passages, I will get to them. Uh, But I think it's important to understand uh, that particular part in light of a bigger whole. Uh, So, one of the things, if you haven't noticed, we have a problem with biblical interpretation, right? As a general, as a culture. Um, if you don't think that's truth, just go to your local Christian bookstore and, uh, and just look on the shelf. Four views on war, four views on end times, four views on the Bible, four views on raising kids, four views, like everything. Well, if it was really clear, we wouldn't need four views, right? Uh, beca- but all over, you know, we have four books, four views on salvation, Right? Or it, you get the idea. So we have biblical interpretation issues, and some of it is because I think we just interpret it um, 
grammatically, historically, literally, and contextually, which are all very important ways to interpret the scriptures, right? Uh, that we understand the history and the culture of the time, that we understand the way in which the literature is written, we understand the context in which it's written, we understand uh, all of those parts, right? And those are all really important, but I think we fail sometimes in, in our interpretation to understand also how to interpret what it's saying redemptively. That there's a, an understanding to what the text is communicating as a whole, right? So uh, what I mean by that is we're taught a lot, if you've gone to Bible classes or if you went to Bible college or if you went to a Christian high school or whatever, you're taught to read the verse and describe what the verse means. But you always understand that you have to understand the word in the verse in light of the verse, then you have to understand the verse in light of the paragraph, the paragraph in light of the section, the section in light of the chapter, the chapter in light of the book, the book in light of the testament, the testament in light of the narrative, right? So the overarching way in which you interpret the text is to be true to the narrative, the overall narrative. You don't want a small part to be inconsistent with the whole narrative. That's why we would hold more to biblical theology. There's a story that's being told. Uh, systematic theology is different. You break it down to all these little parts, and you try to put those parts together and have the parts in one section make sense of the parts in the other section. Biblical theology is looking more at the narrative and how is the narrative speaking, and what is the trajectory in which the narrative is communicating, right? So we would hold more to this idea that the Bible is to be interpreted grammatically, historically, literally, contextually, and redemptively. So as that relates to the role of women in the church, let me describe it this way. Um, <clears throat> if you want to talk about the role, and you want to talk about specific passages related to the role, you have to do it by starting at the beginning. You have to start with creation. So I'm working off the premise, and hopefully you're working off the same premise with me, that in the beginning God created everything and God called it good. And when he created, he created the sun, the moon, the stars. He created everything that we see and imagine. And he created male and female. And when he created male and female, he created them in a complete equality. Male and female were all given the same responsibilities. To subdue the earth, to rule and reign over it, uh, to uh, be people who were co-creators with God. God was a creator. He gave us the ability to be co-creators with him. We're supposed to be about the business of creating, of developing, of subduing and ruling and reigning over the earth, and that's our responsibility, right? And uh, then he said other things like be fruitful and multiply, etc., right? So at the very beginning, complete equality between men and women. Let's pause there for a second, hit the pause button, fast forward all the way to the very end of time. There is uh, in the scriptures a clear understanding that God will create the new heavens and the new earth that we will rule and reign with him in the new heaven and new earth. And uh, I'm just going to surmise that that's incomplete equality with male and female. In fact, Galatians 3 speaks to the idea neither male nor female, slave or free, Hebrew or Jew, so races. There's all equality for everyone. All is one in Christ. That there will be perfect unity, perfect worship, perfect life, perfect everything in the kingdom when it comes in all its fullness, right? So you have at the very beginning of the story, complete perfection and equality and oneness. You have at the very end of the story, complete perfection, equality and oneness. 
So then what's the deal with the middle, right? That's where we live right now. We live in the middle. And the middle's sticky, right? The middle's got lots of problems with it, right? I think you've probably noticed. And uh, most of those problems can be related back to near the beginning when we get to Genesis chapter 3. In Genesis chapter 3, for those of you who are familiar with the story, there was a guy named Adam, there was a woman named Eve, and uh, there was some fruit, okay? The type of fruit I do not know, but uh, the fruit was eaten, and uh, it was commanded you could eat of anything of the garden, but do not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And, uh, you know, good old humans, we decided that would be the one tree we really wanted. And so the story says that Eve ate of the apple, she gave... Uh, to Adam, Adam ate of the apple, God comes down and says, all right, um, Adam, what happened? And Adam says, uh, it's her fault, right? It's Eve. Eve gave it to me. So God says to Eve, uh, Eve, what what happened? And she's like, it's the serpent's fault, right? And that's when we started the whole, like, uh, pass the buck, right? That's how it started. We're like, my fault? No, no, their fault, and it just keeps going down the line, right? So uh, blame shifting happened. We, we passed off the guilt. But at that moment, sin entered the world and everything changed, right? The way in which the world uh, worked, operated, death came. Uh, there were curses that came on the earth. Uh, there was a curse on the serpent, okay, the very beginning. And then if, uh, if you recall the passage well, there's... I think three stated curses. What I mean by that is there's probably more ways in which the earth uh, was put under the, the curse of sin, but three specific were stated. If, uh, if I can remember correctly, the first one is that work is going to be really hard and you're not going to like it. Like when you do uh, gardening, you will get blisters. Like I think that was the subtext, right? Uh, so you're, it's, it's not going to go really well work. It's going to be hard. Two... Uh, sorry, ladies, but childbearing will be difficult. There will be pain. Uh, it won't be the most fun experience, but the result at the end will be great, okay? Uh, and then the third is uh, that there will be uh, division, frustration, uh, tension between the male and the female uh, that they'll want to subdue or rule over one another, and there will be like a fight related to that consistently, Okay? Uh, so those three things kind of have been come a part of the story in the middle. And I believe that the Scriptures teach very clearly that what was in the beginning is perfection, what was, will be at the end is perfection, and it is our responsibility as much as we can to, in the in-between, manifest how best to live into God's ultimate restoration and redemption of all things, Right? which basically is a long way of saying you're not supposed to live into the fall, right? So uh, Paul says things like, should you go on sinning so the grace may abound? And the answer is, by no means. Well, why? Because you are living and starting to operate in a new kingdom kind of way. So live like that. Don't live like you're fallen, right? Now, we could simply go, well, hey, I'm a sinner and, um, you know, I'm going to sin, so I might as well just sin, and then I'll pass the blame. It's not my fault, it's Genesis 3, right? It all started there. But we would, we would all acknowledge that it's our responsibility not to live into the fall, but to live beyond it to what God has created or what He will or is in the process of creating, right? 
And uh, you notice that in all of the three things, right? Well, at least you do in two of them. You notice that in work, we try to make it easier, right? We consistently try to make it easier. So let's imagine you went to your backyard and you had planted some potatoes and now it was time to, to get them. Uh, you wouldn't just like get on your hands and knees and with your hands start to like dig through the dirt and try to like harvest your potatoes. People would look at you like, that's dumb. And you'd go, well, I'm just living into the curse. It hurts. God said it was going to hurt, and it's really bad, and I agree. No, we would get, like, a rake or a hoe, or, you know, if we're super lazy, we'd just get, like, a backhoe and just pull the thing right up, right? We, we make it easier all the time. We develop new ways to make work easier. Now, uh, the same is true with uh, childbearing. Uh, we have been on a continual, like, from the beginning of time to today, a continual trajectory of trying to make this as painless as quick, as easy as possible, uh, with the result being both a healthy baby and a healthy mom. And we live into that. We don't live into the curse and just go, hey, tough it out, no medicine, just go for it. God said it was going to hurt, just get it done, right? No. That's that's ridiculous. We would want to make that better. But then when we come to the third curse, we're like, well, sorry, ladies. This one just kind of stinks. I apologize but life won't be equal for you. Sorry, right? Well, that's not what we're called to do. I don't believe in any way that that's God's desire. God's desire is to see the equality of males and females expressed fully within our culture and world and specifically within the church. In fact, I think he gifts and blesses women with spiritual gifts to be used in the church. Um, and we can talk about that later if we get to it. So let's, let's go to these passages because the, the three uh, or the four questions here deal with a few that are important. The first one I read, how do you justify this, what you just talked about, in light of 1 Corinthians 14.34? Uh, so let's turn to 1 Corinthians 14.34. If you have your Bible, um, why don't you turn there with us because I think it, this, is, uh, this is important. 1 Corinthians 14, 34, um, 35. It says this, and this is like one of those mic drop passages. Uh, As in all the churches of the saints, verse 34, the women should keep silent in the churches. For they are not permitted to speak, but should be in submission, as the law also says, If there is anything they desire to learn, let them ask their husbands at home, for it is shameful for a woman to speak in church. That's a mic drop, right? Done. Uh, End conversation, right? Um, Now, as I said, it's important for us to understand what this is in light of the context and the greater context and in light of the whole narrative. So we'll try to do that. Um, But let let me say this first. On a practical level, I don't think we believe this at all. And here's why. I heard very many lovely voices singing earlier. During greeting time, there were quite a few people talking. If it was about just silence in the church, and we were to be consistent with the literal interpretation of this passage, we would say, hey, why don't you guys talk about that later at home, not here. Right? But the truth is, we don't necessarily believe that. So then what we say is, well, it didn't mean that. It just meant that you couldn't say important things in the church, right? So like you could say them back in kids' space, or you could say them 
like before you came in, but like you can't talk up front or you can't uh, maybe read scripture or you can't like, I mean, and there's different churches. If you go to different churches, all seeking and desiring to, to follow what the scriptures is teaching, and I think uh, with a great heart and intention, there are all different variety of churches that go from the place where I know of a church that doesn't let any women read scripture or be up front or do any leading worship, anything within the church. To others, that full expression of every gift within the church, right? So you have that. But on a practical level, I don't know that we agree with it. So let's, let's look at it on a biblical level for a moment, okay? So real quick, uh, if you flip over to uh, 1 Corinthians 11... Uh, verses 4 and 5. Uh, just a quick little thing. Every, uh, verse 4, every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head, but every wife who prays or prophesies with her head covered dishonors her head. Now, to give you context, this is written uh, to the church and talking about the way in which the church is worshiping together. And it says, men, if uh, you pray and prophesy, don't cover your head. Women, uh, if you pray and prophesy, do cover your head. Okay? And it's speaking about issues of modesty. Uh, it's interesting, though. It says, pray and prophesy. Can you pray silently? Yes. Can you pray out loud? Yes. Can you prophesy silently? I mean, maybe if you mind will it to somebody, right? like, oh, there you go. Uh, but otherwise, no, you can't. So three chapters before, what Paul is saying is, hey, we're worshiping together, and when you pray and prophesy, you should, you should just do that modestly, okay? Which implies that there's some speaking from women. You go over to verse, uh, or chapter 14, uh, verse 5. Uh, it says this, Now I want you all to speak in tongues, but even more to prophesy. The one who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues, but so, so that the church may be built, may be built up, Right? So I want all, everyone, other versions say everyone, um, both male and female, everyone, to pray and prophesy. Again, verbally. Again, within the context of a worship service. Again, within the church. It says that in verse 5. You go to uh, verse 26. Uh, Some versions say, what then brothers? Other versions say, what then brothers and sisters? The reason it says brothers and sisters in some versions and not others is because what it's doing is being consistent with the language for the whole chapter. So it's all, everyone, all, everyone. Then you get to this next, brothers and sisters. When you come together, each one, everyone, should have a hymn, a lesson, a revelation, a tongue, an interpretation so that the body of Christ may be built up, right? Again, speaking, talking, out loud, vocal. You get to verse 39. So the issue in question was verse 35 and 36, I think, or four, 34 and 35. Now verse 39. So my brothers, and again implied as sisters, earnestly desire to prophesy and do not forbid speaking in tongues. So what you notice in this text alone is that whether it's in chapter 11 or whether it's in chapter 14, everything leading up to that statement is women are being active in the use of gifts of prophecy and tongues in prayer, in songs, in hymns, in read, whatever the church is doing. And then afterwards, he's saying, I wish and desire for all of you, everyone, to be using those gifts. 
So, what about 34 and 35? I would say one of two things is happening. Either we, uh, Paul is super confused about what's going on um, and is speaking out of both sides of his mouth. Uh, or uh, there's a couple other ideas behind it. One being that he's speaking to a specific thing at a specific time for a specific reason and is not saying that this is true of all women at all time in all contexts forever and ever. Amen. Right? But for this time, for this season, that's one thought. The other thought is more and more linguists have spent time looking at this specific passage and they are convinced that there are a few little phrases missing out of the most uh, prominent texts. Right? And so we're missing part of what would make sense for us to understand that that's not what he is communicating. That it isn't about women being silent and not speaking within the church, which is good because all of you broke that rule anyway this morning. Right? So that's the, uh, the, the answer, I think, for at least for me, maybe not for you, to 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 34 and 35. Now you need to understand that our desire in going through this is to say we're not afraid to have conversations about any and all of these topics. And this morning, I won't have the be-all, end-all answer for you or for anyone, probably. Um, But it should spark and continue on a conversation related to this subject. So let's uh, let's keep going. What about women not speaking in the church? What about 1 Timothy 2, uh, women being silent? Uh, So let's go to 1 Timothy 2. 1 Timothy 2. And um, I think we should start around uh, verse 8. I desire that every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. Likewise, also that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel with modesty and self-control not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper. For women who profess godliness with good works, let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man, rather she is to remain quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman was. Uh, Verse 15, Then uh, yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. Okay? So, Uh, This is uh, another case where I would uh, suggest that when we read it, we have to read it in light of its cultural and historical context. Uh, Again, we have to ask the question, is this being written as a uh, prescriptive directions for us to adhere to in 2016 as well as 2050 or forever, however long uh, before Christ returns? Uh, anytime you interpret the scriptures, whether Old Testament, New Testament, what you're doing is you're sitting here in history looking back at what is being communicated then to a group of people. So it's important for us to understand this and what it's, what it's saying. Now, one of the easiest ways to do that is ask the question, is what is being communicated here, do we believe that culturally that is for us today? Right? And we'll just go through it. In verse 8, I desire that in every place that men should pray lifting holy hands without anger and quarreling. Is that a command for today? 
you could say, yeah, that sounds great. I mean, there were only maybe a few of us lifting holy hands while we prayed. But it doesn't mean that you can't do that, and it doesn't mean that you shouldn't do that, and it doesn't mean that it's like directive, but it is a good suggestion, and it's good that you can live into that, right? The next one, uh, that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel with modesty. Yeah, should women dress with modesty? Yeah, I think that's for today. That makes absolute sense. Now, that will look different today than it did 100 years ago, right? And, and we're glad of that, right? Um, and it'll look different in 100 years, right? Because modesty is like a principle or an idea, not a, uh, a, like a lesson plan on what you should wear on a given day, right? So it's important to understand that's a principle as well. So should men lift up holy hands in prayer at every single time you pray? No, it's a principle. Uh, the principle of modesty. Next question, or next section. Uh, women should not braid hair and gold or pearls or costly attire. Is that for today or not for today? Nobody seems to be answering. I'll take that as a not for today, right? Um, women should have good deeds, I think the text goes on to say. Yeah, absolutely. I think we should all have good deeds. Uh, women should be silent and quiet in the church. Uh, again, I would say, culturally speaking, that I would not agree with that as being a binding principle for this moment and this time. Uh, verse 7, should a woman um, not permitted to teach or exercise authority over a man? Again, some of us in the room might say, well, doctrinally we think that is for today, and others would say, doctrinally we don't think it's for today. Um, what about a woman being saved through childbearing? Is that for today or not for today? Or maybe not forever, right? Um, you, you, have to, you have to ask the question, it, what is for today and what isn't for today? And in the process of doing so, I think it, it becomes easier to recognize, that, it, and in my opinion, what he is speaking in this is culturally bound to that time where there are principles that remain. So a principle of modesty remains. A principle of the way in which we worship remains. A principle of uh, relating to one another with mutual submission remains. Principle, uh, there's all kinds of principles. But I don't think the principle of women being saved through childbearing, women being silent within the church, is one that remains, especially in light of the overall narrative. Right? And especially in light of, if you, like, you zoom out to 1 Timothy, and then you zoom out to the epistles, and then you zoom out further to the New Testament... That's really inconsistent with all that we see women doing in the New Testament. Even in the New Testament, you see over and over and over illustrations of, of uh, women like Phoebe who, who led the church and had Bible studies and discipleship. You, you see, and uh, in, in being called a deacon, you see uh, other ladies within the church leading both Old Testament and New Testament. You see Miriam in the Old Testament as a prophetess. You see Huldah as an advisor in the scriptures to to, uh, the, um, to the king, Josiah, at the time. Uh, you, I mean, you see uh, Deborah, I believe, being a, a, a judge, ruling over all of the people of Israel. So uh, to say that women were not in leader, areas of leadership and were not living into the gifts of the Spirit, uh, even if you look at um, Acts chapter 2, is a perfect illustration. In Acts chapter 2, uh, the Pentecost, the Spirit of God comes and is given to the church, right? Super important. Like, one of the more dramatic moments in the Scriptures 
And the start of all that we know to be true of the church happened in that moment in Acts 2. And it says in that moment that the Spirit will give to the sons and to the daughters the ability to speak and do miracles and do signs and wonders. That it will give to male servants and female servants prophecy and gifts of tongues, right? So what is, what is being communicated? That the Spirit gives to both men and women equally the gifts of the Spirit. And so I would simply say for New Community that uh, what do we believe women can do in the church? Anything that God has gifted them to do. And since He's gifted them with teaching and with leadership and with prophecy and tongues and authority, then that's what they should live into. And to do anything less than that is not to live into what I think the Spirit and the overall understanding of the text is communicating. Does that make sense? So, uh, hopefully that answers question number one. Woo, man. Okay, we got like uh, two minutes left. This is why we didn't get to uh, many questions. You can, this is, okay. Um, question, is there a possibility for a woman to be in a pastoral preaching role on a continual basis outside of children's ministries? Absolutely. Uh, that has been and uh, that has been something that has been true of New Community in the past. We've uh, had uh, a woman named Rochelle uh, on pastoral ministry here at the church. It's something we're praying currently about doing again, and uh, that that is something that absolutely uh, happens on a regular basis. Uh, next week there will be two women who are preaching uh, on a consistent basis. We have female voices uh, communicating or preaching. There's females leading worship. Uh, last week, a female led worship and led the, the group. Um, there are women who are doing calls to worship on a regular basis. Uh, any, we believe any and all level of ministry within the church. We have a woman, uh, Michelle Estelle, who uh, sits on the elder board. And uh, there, there's, uh, to us, no ceiling related to the way in which uh, women can express their gifts uh, within the church. Um, what makes a person qualified and how are those characteristics confirmed? I would answer that question the same way I would answer it for a male, just like I would answer it for a female. Um, I think in the scriptures there's a really clear teaching that people who are to be leaders, uh, people who are to be pastors or shepherds of a community are to be people who uh, are above reproach is the technical word that's used, right? Now, the idea behind that is to uh, be... Their, their lifestyle, their practice, the way they live is held to a standard uh, where people could look and say, we believe they're with all of their heart trying to consistently follow the teachings of Jesus, live into love and obedience to, the, to Jesus and to the scriptures. Now, will each leader fail in that at some point? Absolutely. I fail all the time. Just ask my kids and my wife. They live with me. It happens all the time, Right? Uh, but my hope and intention is to live into all uh, that I'm supposed to and called to live into as a follower of Jesus, just like that's your calling as well, right? Uh, and so for both male and female, we judge that the same way. What is the evidence of your life? What are, what are the ways in which you demonstrate the fruit of the Spirit, right? Uh, what we tend to do with the fruit of the Spirit, just a side note, is we go, oh, hope, peace, joy, love. Well, they don't really have the love, but at least they have the hope, joy, peace. No. It's not fruits of the Spirit, it's fruit. It's like one, one way of living, and this is the way I live, and the way I live encompasses love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. If I don't have the fruit of the Spirit, if I'm not living in a way that, 
that, that God is working through me, then that would be evidence to say that that person, whether female or male, may not be qualified or in the position of growth in order to help steward and shepherd this community. Does that make sense? Um, we could talk about, uh, there's like five or six more questions there, uh, and I know some of you didn't have yours answered, and I apologize for that. Um, I would be happy at any time to talk about it uh, again, uh, to talk with you one-on-one, or if, if there is a need, if there's a lot of people saying, oh, we need, we need more, uh, then we could set up a, a night where we could come and just do more of a Q&A, and I would be happy to do that. But hopefully this captures just a little bit of two things. One, that we're not afraid to have these conversations, and they're very, very important. Uh, years ago, we did an Elephants in the Church series, uh, meaning anything that like stands out as a sore thumb that the church never talks about, let's talk about it. Because uh, it's very important that our faith uh, integrates with every aspect of our life. All right? The second thing I hope you recognize is that uh, we don't have all the answers. We're on the journey, and we're, we're seeking to learn together and grow together and to express it to its fullest. All right? Let me pray, and then uh, a reminder. The annual, all-important, amazing, can't-miss-it business meeting is taking place after the service, after we greet a few people, and that'll happen in the back. Let me pray. Uh, God, we, uh, we're very much, very much in love with you. Uh, we are just amazed that you remind us on a consistent basis that your faithfulness begins afresh every morning, that, that we get to uh, know when we lay our head on our pillow at night that there is this almighty, amazing Father and Son and Spirit that are singing songs over us, that know us intimately, that know the number of hairs on our head, that call us by name, uh, that, that that is who we are in you. And God, may we live into the full expression of that. May we uh, support uh, both uh, as male and female each other in this journey of faith. And may, may it be central to who new community is that we express in uh, very full and authentic ways uh, what it means to worship together. And uh, God, just give us a great rest of the day, and may you be honored with the lives we lead. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. You are dismissed. Have a fantastic week, and uh, hopefully we'll see you in the back.